Well, we're on the road again with the road of sacrifice, and someone could cue Willie Nelson's song right now if you want, but, uh, but the roads to Jesus, um, we're looking at the road of sacrifice today from Romans chapter 5. And you know, um, I was thinking the kids say some very funny things sometimes. We had the opportunity and privilege to be able to watch our grandchildren, again, Zach and Amanda's kids. And I was over there, uh, it began in the afternoon, over there on Friday, and um, watching them. And then Becky was going to join me a little later and, and, and do that uh, together. And so uh, we were anticipating Grandma coming over. And so we were at their window, looking out the, door, at the, at the window to the road out there, waiting for her yellow bug to drive by and park. And uh, both of them were really excited about it, and we were watching, and we saw, we saw Grandma come driving in her bug, and she kept on going. She's like, did she miss the house? What's going on? And so they're like, where's Grandma? What's going on? And they were looking around, and then we, we waited, and then here comes Grandma and her yellow bug going by, and she kept on going. It's like, what? <laughs> What's happening? And then Ransom says, you know, she's driving like a mom. <laughs> What? And I don't know what that says about moms. I don't know what it says about women drivers, but I don't know how he got that. But anyway, he just blurted that out. Becky did make it to the house, by the way. just want you to know. We had some fun with them, though, that day. But in light of Valentine's Day coming up and, and what I'm about to share with you in today's message, let me share some other interesting things kids say about love. One child said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> Another child said, love is like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. <laughs> Another child said, love is the most important thing in the world, but baseball is pretty good too. <laughs> Another child said, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find me a wife. <laughs> Another child said, I'm not rushing into being in love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. And another one said, it gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. <laughs> another one said, love will find you even if you are trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. <laughs> another child said, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget, and it's good for them to get reminded. <laughs> good words. Good words. You know, God says He loves us a lot because He means it. And it's good for us to be reminded of this fact because, you know what? We might forget. We might get bound down by all the troubles of this world and forget at times, oh, yeah, God loves me. Why are we talking about God's love today? It's because the road of sacrifice is paved with God's love, and we need to hear what this love is all about. Love is the supreme expression of God's being and flows out of His goodness. It affects all His other attributes as well. And one person writes, he says, Love is not something He chooses to do or give. It is the very essence of who He is. He doesn't just love. He is love. It motivates His every action, directs His activities, and reflects His desires. The theologian Wayne uh, Grudem offers a simple yet profound def uh, definition of love. He said, God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. 
Yeah, our culture today is primarily focused on the romantic or, or brotherly love. But God's love is agape, the purest, deepest, and most unconditional kind of love. It's not merely a, a friendly attitude he, he projects, but it's the essence of his very nature. Here's just a few verses that speak about God's love, and we'll see if Ray can keep up with me on this. <laughs> Psalm 36, verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Psalm 63, verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 119, verse 76, Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise. Isaiah 38, verse 17, But in, you, in love... You have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Hosea 14, verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Zephaniah uh, chapter 3, verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and steadfastness of Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I trust those verses can just remind you of God's love for you, and what his, his love is all about. A world-renowned uh, theologian was asked what he considered to be the most significant theological truth he ever encountered, and his response was immediate. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Simple childhood song with great theological impact. Without a doubt, there is no attribute of God so widely believed as the love of God. And at the same time, there's no, there's, there's no attribute of God that has been so badly misunderstood. <laughs> Here are two wrong ideas that can, can come out of, a, of a wrong understanding, misunderstanding of His love. One, because God loves me, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I have God's love with me to keep me going. And I, you know, some people use God's love as a license to live the way they want. Come, come on Sundays dress nicely, act nicely, and then the rest of the days I can do whatever I want because I've got God's love. God's love covers me, right? Well, uh, Jesus addressed this in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. <laughs> Another thing that's misunderstood about uh, God's love is God's love means everyone will go to heaven. God loves us, so we're all going, right? Many non-Christians have the idea when they get to the gates of heaven, God will smile and say, oh, you've been a pretty good person. Come on in. You're fine. While this sounds loving, it's completely at odds with what the Bible teaches. As Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, only those who put their complete faith and trust in Christ will be saved. It says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. As Max Lucado says, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. We see this in Jesus' interaction with a man who, made, who had made money his master. 
It's very interesting that Jesus doesn't clobber this guy, even though Cash is his king, because he came in and he, he upset all the tables in, in the temple and uh, ran out the money changers. But listen to Mark chapter 10, verse 21. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Even though Jesus loved him, he was quick to point out what he was lacking and directed the man to follow Jesus as the Lord of his life. And sadly, then in verse 22 of the same chapter, we, we uh, see this. <clears throat> Disheartened by, by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus loved, loved this guy and yet let him walk away. His love never compromises his truth. And human love is generally a, a response to the conditions and circumstances around us. We love because someone pleases us or because they're, they're good looking. And by contrast, God loves us because that's the kind of God He is, period. He loves us. Nothing in us causes Him to love us. He just loves us. Richard Strauss, pastor and author, suggests seven characteristics of God's love. I'd like to share those with you here. Seven characteristics of God's love. First, God's love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. God's love is extended to us when we don't deserve it, and it continues steadfast and strong even when we don't respond to it. There's nothing we can do to make Him love us any more, and nothing we ever do will cause Him to love us any less. He loves us perfectly and completely regardless of how we perform. There's a great biblical illustration of God's unconditional love in His relationship with the nation of Israel. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and, and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It's, the Lord loves them. It, that's it. There is no human reason for His love for Israel. They were a rebellious Stiff-necked people, but he loved them simply because he loved them. <laughs> and that's how it is with you and me. He loves us just because he loves us. Nothing we ever did made him love us, so nothing we ever do will make him stop loving us. He loves us when we're grouchy, just as much as when we're glad. He loves us when we sin just as much as when we don't. He loves us when we open our mouths and say things we know we shouldn't have said. He loves us when we're feeling as, as though nobody in the whole world loves us. And He loves us even when we don't love ourselves. He never stops loving us. His love is unconditional. Another thing about God's love is God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal. We can never exhaust the love of God. Jeremiah 31, verse 3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That everlasting love reaches into eternity past, and, and He knew us and loved us before He made us, and He will love us for eternity to come as well. As Paul assured us, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. And the love of an eternal God must be an etern eternal love. So God's love has no limit. It's described in uh, F.M. Lehman's gospel song. Maybe you've heard it. 
Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I'm sure we could have Julie sing that whole song a cappella right now. Beautiful song, beautiful song. God's love is infinite and it's eternal. God's love is also holy. God's love is holy. Since God is holy, then His love must be a holy love that expects holiness in those He loves. God will, will use every loving way to encourage our obedience. He does that because He loves us. The writer to the Hebrews encouraged us not to regard God's discipline lightly. It's the evidence of His love for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. He knows that obedience to His word will be for our greatest benefit. So He takes steps to help us want to obey Him. It reminds me, Becky and I, when we raised our kids, we gave our kids every opportunity to obey us, every opportunity to do what is right. What we did is we made what was wrong seem so horrible and awful. They'll want to do what's right. So we, as parents, maybe you've been there before, as parents, we want our children to do what's right. We, we, we raise them to be able to think for themselves, of course, but make good choices, and, uh, and, and again, to do what is right. God wants us as well, too, doing the same thing. He wants us to obey Him. And so He takes every step to help us want to obey Him. If He didn't love us, He wouldn't care about our well-being. So God's love is holy. God's love is also comforting. God's love is comforting. True love brings security and comfort. When you're loved by someone, you feel secure when it's that true love, genuine love. And when we grasp the reality of God's love, we won't be looking for our security in jobs or in bank accounts or in investments or houses, our husband or our wife or friends or our health. We'll rest in the Lord free from all fear, secure in the assurance that He is going to provide all that we need and protect us from everything that won't be for our good. Listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. It says, says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Understanding God's love eliminates all fear. Fear of God's discipline, fear of what tomorrow holds, holds fear of, of losing a loved one, fear of losing a job. Fear of disasters, fear of global war, fear of suffering, fear of death, fear of being alone, fear of rejection. You can just place whatever you want in that fear of blank spot. God loves us. And there's nothing to fear. His love is comforting. God's love is also life-changing. God's love is life-changing. Now, most of us long to be loving people able to give love to our spouses and our children and other believers around us and, and, and our, our friends and in our community, and most of all, of course, to the Lord Himself. But we find it so difficult sometimes 
It's nearly impossible for us to love others unless we are convinced that we are loved too. Some of us might be a little hard and calloused and insensitive and unloving people because we're not convinced we are really loved. We ask ourselves, why should I be loving to others when nobody shows any love to me? God's love can change that. We can find all the acceptance and the affection we crave in God. Then when we are confident that we are loved, we can extend love to others. As John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. It's true. God loves us. We may never be able to grasp it fully with our human understanding alone, but God is ready to make it real to us if our hearts are open and receptive to His Word. Then, secure in His love, we are able to reach out in love to others unselfishly, sacrificially, unconditionally. And it will influence our relationship with those around us. God's love is life-changing. God's love also, too, is, is self-giving. God's love is self-giving. To say it another way, love is a verb, <laughs> not primarily a feeling. Whenever we talk about love, there should be the one giving and the other receiving. We always have that uh, interaction going on. Our love is often selfish and demanding, but God's love is pure. God wants to communicate Himself to us, give of Himself to us, and give His very best to us for our benefit and our blessing. And because He is love, He loves to give. Jesus said He gives good things to those who ask Him. And James went so far as to say that every good gift finds its source in Him. So since God is love, we can expect Him to give of Himself. God's love is self-giving. And then finally, God's love is sacrificial. Not only does God's love motivate him to give, but it motivates him to give when it costs him dearly. We hesitate to do anything for others that might cost us too much or inconvenience us too greatly. We give it a second thought. We might even not do it. But God's love cost him the very best that he had. It was his only son. God giving his son involved more than allowing him to leave heaven's glory and enter our world. It meant allowing him to die in our place. And it meant to pay that awful debt of our sins. God proved his love by sending his son to the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, This is love, not that we have loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is sacrificial. And one of the clearest passages about God's love is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. We're going to look at that for a little bit here today. It says, For while we were still weak, the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What I want to do here is just to break this down a bit by looking at four descriptions of our condition before we came to Christ. Four descriptions. 
First, there's the, the weak. We became weak. This, this word is usually applied to the sick and to the feeble, to those who have been wiped out by some kind of disease. <laughs> it's also used in the more moral sense as an inability to fulfill a duty. They were too weak to complete this job. Weak, another condition before we came to Christ, ungodly, ungodly. Even if we could change, we had no desire to change in the first place. <laughs> we were not only weak, but wicked and obnoxious, irreverent and impious. We, we had no, uh, no, no idea of following God. Another condition as listed here as well, as we were, we were sinners. And the word sinner means to miss the target, means to deviate. We have totally missed the mark of God's perfection. The word sinner is not used very much these days. Probably needs to as far as getting back to biblical terms. And another condition that we find ourselves in before we came to Christ, not here in those verses of 6 through 8, but it's found in verse 10. Enemies, enemies. This word is found in that verse, and it means adversaries filled with hostility and hatred. We were against God. Now, it might not have been outwardly and, and, and projected that way, but we were on the other side. We were His enemy. And this is not a very popular teaching, especially when we're focusing on God's love, <laughs> but it's true. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, as that we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Just think about that. Before you came to the saving knowledge of Christ and you received Christ as your Savior, you were God, objects of God's wrath, <laughs> enemies of God. There is no reason for God to love us. <laughs> you are not a naturally lovable person. <laughs> Neither am I. Sin has infected our lives so much that it has, has distorted even the parts we think are beautiful. You see, sin, in a, in a way you could say it, sin uglifies everything it touches. It turns everything ugly. And you find all this discouraging. Remember this. If God loved you only when you were lovable, then when you stopped being lovable, God would have to stop loving you. It's better to admit the truth, isn't it? God loves us in spite of our unloveliness. We can count on His love because it doesn't depend on our personality. It doesn't depend on our performance. So now that we've established the truth about who we are, let's look at God's incredible solution to our impossible situation. In Romans chapter 5, verse 7, it reveals the unconditional nature of God's love here. Romans 5, Verse 7 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. I wonder how many people I would be willing to die for. That list isn't very long. It's pretty short. Maybe your list as well, too, is pretty short. Maybe there aren't any people on your list. But if you look at verse 8, it says, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see the timing there? While we were still sinners. Oh, man. The wonder 
is not that Christ should die for us, but that He should do so while we were weak, ungodly, rebellious sinners, and the enemies of God. If you're a believer and struggle to believe God loves you, think about this. If God loved you enough to give His Son when you were His enemy, surely He loves you enough to care for you now that you are His child. Remember that. So, our response. What is our response to this love of God? Biblical love always leads to action. Love is always incomplete alone. And it requires some kind of movement, some kind of action. It's impossible to just say you love someone without demonstrating that love in tangible ways. I trust that you coming up on, on the 14th will be able to tell your spouse, tell your loved one you love them in a tangible way. You can't just say, yep, love you, babe. See you next year. <laughs> Where are the flowers? Where's the candy? Where's the date night out? You got to show it. You got to demonstrate it. You just can't give them the words. So what are we to do in response to God's love? Let me share some things for you. I believe we need to love Him wholeheartedly. As Matthew 22, verses 37 through 38, raises the bar for us on this. If we say we love God, we need to demonstrate it with everything we've got. Matthew 22 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Doesn't leave much left out there. And this is the great and first commandment. This is what we should be doing, loving God wholeheartedly. Our response to God's love also should be for us to love your neighbors. We need to love our neighbors. Matthew 22, verse 39 says, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love them wholeheartedly, love your neighbors. Then also to love your enemies. That's a tough one. Uh, you can decide who your enemies are, I guess, I suppose. And you might have a list of those. And, and uh, you, you keep them there and hopefully you're praying for them. But Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What does it mean? And maybe this is something you guys can check out for yourselves. But what does it mean to love your enemies? I think Romans 12 has a good idea about that towards the end of the chapter there. Also, we need to love not the world. Love not the world. <clears throat> it's so easy to look for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> Sex outside of marriage is a sin. Watch what you watch. Only text what is appropriate. Stay faithful to your vows. Be holy as He is holy. Don't cave into this world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 tells us a little more about this too. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You can't have it both ways. If you say you love God, and you're involved with the world's ways, there's something that isn't right. Something not quite right there. Love not the world. 
Also, our response to God's love is that love compels us to tell others, telling others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and verse 20, it says, for, the Christ, for Christ's love compels us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. <laughs> because we have been the recipients of His incredible love, we are called to be these ambassadors of, of that love and share it with others. So if you have that relationship with Christ and you know about His love and you have lived in that love, what are you doing to be His ambassadors to those around you about God's love? How are you sharing that with others? And I'm thankful that Mike is leading the group down in, in, the, in the Bible discovery class, helping you discover what that looks like, how to share your faith, how to begin to share your testimony and your, and your witness what God has done for you. And one other thing as far as our response to God's love is that love invites you to be saved. Love invites you to be saved. In the passage from Romans chapter 5 that we looked at here, the word for is used four different times. And the meaning is so broad, no one English word can convey what it really means. It can be translated for the benefits of or on behalf of or instead of, and when the Bible says Jesus died for you, it means that He died on your behalf, in your place, so that you can enjoy all the benefits of His work. He paid it all. Well, let's wrap this up by taking a close look at a very familiar verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. I think this one, as we break it down a little bit, Trust that it will bring home this truth of God's love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So here's how it begins. The phrase, For God so loved the world. The word for puts this text into context. <laughs> if we go back a few verses from here, we read that during the time of Moses, God's people experienced a plague as a result of provoking God. And with the poison of snakes in their veins, if they had to do, uh, all they had to do was, was look at a pole with a bronze serpent on it, and they would live. God gave them a solution for their sinfulness. The, the phrase, for God, this is precisely where the Bible begins. <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, in the beginning, God. Everything begins with God and ends with God. And the sooner we realize life is all about giving glory to God and not to ourselves, the better, we, better off we will be. It's not about you, it's all about Him. And that little word, so, little word right there, so, shows us God doesn't love a little, but a lot. The volume of God's love is cranked up high because He so loves. The word love is the word agape, which refers to an unconditional covenant kind of love. It's a verb, meaning it's a word of action. And notice God loves the whole world, that word right there, world. This would have been a shock to Jewish listeners who thought God only loved them. 
And while you may not feel loved by others, God loves you more than you can ever imagine. You matter to the majesty. He takes great delight in you, no matter what you've done. I hope you hear that. You cannot escape God's love. You can't undo God's love. He loves you no matter how you've been living. and He treasures you in spite of all your transgressions. And that word gave in the phrase, in the, in the phrase that he gave his, his only son, has the idea of, of lavish and, and means to abound to pour, and to pour out. It helps us see that God loves us so much, he lavishes us with the gift of his son. And the, and the phrase, his only son, is very significant. The idea is that Jesus is the unique one and only Son. And some older translations, as you're familiar with, is the only begotten Son. And while it's helpful to know God loves and lavishes us, none of it, none of it will, will matter until we lean into Him. The phrase that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, aren't you glad that the word whoever is in that phrase? Whoever. God loves the whole world, which means everyone, and He offers salvation to whoever, which means you. He loves the whole mass of people. He loves you and He loves me in our mess. <laughs> he loves you. And to believe means to trust in or rely on and lean into. The idea is to fully surrender to the Savior, to give yourself up to Him, to take yourself out of your own keeping and entrust yourself into His keeping. Our good works don't work. <laughs> Being good is not good enough because no one is good enough. The gap is too big. The issue is not right behavior, but right belief. The only way for sinners to be saved is by repenting and receiving the Savior, by leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Unfortunately, not everyone will benefit from what Christ has done. The offer is inclusive, but the application is exclusive. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ and is applied only for those who believe and receive Him. It's for everyone but only to those who receive, only those who believe, only those who trust in Him. So God loves and lavishes, and when we lean into Him, we will live. Look how this verse ends. Should not perish, but have eternal life. The only negative aspect of this verse is found in this phrase. To perish, that word there, perish, means to be eternally separated from God. I don't know about you. I don't want to go there. I don't want to be eternally separated from God. Even here, where we live and the world we're in, God is still with us. <laughs> Imagine what that would look like without God. Another word for all this is hell a place of eternal and conscious judgment. 
It's described as a place of darkness, of weeping, of gnashing of teeth, eternal fire, and torment. Doesn't sound like a fun place to me. And the, that word but shows a contrast. We, we don't have to perish. We can have eternal life instead. There's no way you can earn God's love because it's not for sale. <laughs> Nothing we can do to make God love us any more than He already does. And there's nothing we can do to make Him love us any less. You're stuck with God's love. (laughs) You are more sinful than you ever believed and more loved than you ever dared to imagine. So here's the question. What more does God have to do to show you that He loves you? What more does God have to do to show you that He loves you? Didn't He sacrifice enough already? Probably the best known and most loved of all hymns is Amazing Grace. The composer, John Newton, best described himself in the words, A wretch like me. As a sailor, he was notoriously profane. His debauchery led to his being enslaved, but eventually he became a ship's captain. In the English slave trade, one day in a terrible storm in the northern Atlantic, when it seemed the ship and all on board would be lost, Newton called upon the God he had rejected. His last years were spent in ministry and hymn writing. The truth behind the song was Newton's realization that salvation is based entirely on the grace of God and not on any goodness of our own. There's nothing we can do to earn this. As the song says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. D. James Kennedy once gave his testimony in seminary. He told of his conversion. He woke one Sunday morning when his radio alarm came on and a religious program was playing. And the speaker asked this question, and it might be a great question for the uh, uh, Bible discovery group and discussion group that's going on, a great question to ask after you give your testimony. The speaker asked, if you were to die tonight and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, how would you respond? Imagine hearing that when you're waking up out of a dead sleep and, and, and to the alarm radio coming on. And here's this guy asking you this question. If you were to die tonight and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, how would you respond? It's a great question. A great question because it gets people to evaluate where they're at. Who are they trusting in? What are they trusting in? Do they even trust in anything at all? That is the question everyone, though, must answer at some time. Why should God let you into heaven? Why should he? And there's only one satisfactory answer. Because while I was, a, was still a sinner, God showed his love for me, and Jesus died in my place. There's nothing, nothing that I could do to earn my way to heaven. Jesus Christ paid it all. When it was impossible for us to reach out to him, he reached out to us and loved us sacrificially. 
that's the road. That's the road of sacrifice. What He has done for us. And He loves us so much. (laughs) So here's the question for you. How will you respond to His sacrificial love? How will you respond to His sacrificial love? I invite the worship team to come on up. And as they do, I'm going to pray. And I believe this next song that we sing might be able to be a prayer for you as well, too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you be with each one here today. And those who are online, join us as well. And Lord, that, that question that just echoes in our hearts right now. Why should God let us into his heaven? What would we say? I pray, Lord, that those who might not have an answer for that, that they would realize there's a way to find that answer, and they're only a prayer way. I pray, Lord, that they would realize that there's a God who loves them, a God who calls their name and wants that relationship with them. Lord, if there's someone here today or also too online that doesn't know you as Savior, they've heard about you, they've read about you, They understand that you existed, but they just don't have that relationship. I pray, Lord, that this will be the day that they'll realize they can have that relationship with you. And all they need to do is just spend some time praying, agreeing with you, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I need a Savior. Yes, you died on that cross for me. I am so thankful that you aren't dead and in the tomb. You live today. You've risen You've risen and you are preparing a place for me as I put my trust for eternal life in you. Lord, save me. (laughs) Clean me up. And I would pray that if anyone is praying that prayer, Lord, that they would feel the full assurance that they are saved, that they are a child of God. Lord, if there's someone here today who does have that relationship with you, but maybe they just, they've gotten worn down by the world. I pray, Lord, that they would realize that you are still there. Nothing's going to separate, separate them from your love. You love them greatly, and you continue to go after them, calling their name. And so, Lord, if there's someone here today who has that relationship with you, but maybe it's kind of become stale on this Sunday before Valentine's Day, where we show love to those around us and, the, and, and show love to our loved ones. Wouldn't it be great on a Sunday like this that we could be able to show this love to you, Lord? To say, I love you. I want to follow you so closely. And I want you to be first place in my life. Lord, I, I ask that you would just work in people's lives today. If they're praying a prayer of salvation or praying a prayer of, of a surrender, sanctification, Lord, I ask that you would just continue to come into their presence right now, guiding them in all this and helping them realize that you're a God of love that wants the best for them. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting with us. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to meet with us. And as we sing this next song, I pray that it would be in a, in a posture of prayer that would be our prayer requests for you as well, too. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.